Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Good afternoon. It is Friday, July 8th, and this is Noon Edition on WFIU with Sarah Whitmire. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. This week we're talking about urban forestry in the aftermath of this spring's tornadoes in Indiana. And with us in studio to discuss that are Tom Evans, the director of the Center for the Study of Institutions, Population, and Environmental Change, Bloomington's city forester Lee Huss, and IU Director of Landscape Architecture Mia Williams. Thanks to the three of you for being here today. You can join our program today by calling us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also go to our website, which is wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can leave a comment or join our live chat there. Well, I want to start out with sort of a, a, a broad question. Um, and uh, Lee, why don't we start with you? Just tell me, and, and feel free, the other two of you, to jump in. What defines an urban forest as we consider it today? Great question to start off. Uh, a lot of times when I explain what urban forestry is, a lot of people say it's the greatest oxymoron out there. Um, I like to refer to it as growing sequoias in a five-gallon container um, <laughs> because a lot of times um, both me and I work in a world that's given to us by civil engineers. And a lot of times these people don't understand the needs of what trees need in an urban ecosystem. So it is my job to select the right tree at the right location, keep it alive, and then remove it the day before it wants to fall down. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad you asked Lee that question because as a landscape architect, there is a distinction between urban forestry and landscape architecture. We are, as landscape architects, uh, charged more with uh, looking at trees as design elements. Um, Not that they don't have ecosystem uh, benefits that we incorporate into that design, but it's not the same animal as looking at creating an urban forest. It's more of a site-specific occupation. Uh, how do you go about, uh, Lee, you mentioned uh, talking about the, the right tree for each space. I, I wonder f- from each of you how that, uh, how that process is done because uh, I myself, uh, I can't you know, landscape my house, let alone a city. Um, how would you go about doing that? How do you even learn to go about doing something like that? Well, you you become immersed in what different tree options are out there. You work closely with the nursery industry, and then you just study certain trees that react differently to different the ecosystem's needs. Certain trees uh, can tolerate restricted root spaces. Certain trees have different shapes. Um, Some are more messier than others when it comes to fruit litter and such. And then you look at all these different – and there's many other different variables – and then you look at the location. Um, one of the biggest thing is a lot of people plant trees and they don't look up. And they're planting large trees under utility right-of-ways and such. And then the local power companies come through and do their um, cutting their for their clearance. And then no one's happy with what. So the average tree living 30-some-odd years uh, we have just a few moments to get it right the first time because the community is going to live with that decision for a while. Is it rare for a city the size of Bloomington to have a forester on staff? Actually, when I first started, there were in, in 1983 here in Bloomington, um, my position was kind of rolled into as a city landscaper, so I had other functions that I was performing, but has since, um, for the past, Oh, 15 years or so have just been trees only, but there are roughly, I want to say about 28 other uh, municipalities in Indiana that have uh, a forester on staff, someone who has been trained either in horticultural uh, background that, that does tree maintenance for municipalities. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the fastest growing fields in forestry. Uh, a lot of schools 
uh, forestry schools are having cutbacks uh, in enrollment, but uh, the urban forestry uh, curriculums in some of these major colleges are the ones that are getting placements. So it's a growing field. Tom, I want to get you into the discussion here. Tell me, first of all, uh, what what the center does. Uh, the, what what is your job uh, entail? Because it sounds like it's a an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different aspects um, that that uh, Mia and Lee would also deal with, and and you kind of bring everybody together in a certain regard on this panel. Well, the the research that we do at at SIPEC, which is the acronym we use to because the name is long and unwieldy. <laughs> but uh, it, we have a lot of different diverse research projects, a lot of which are, have an international focus on generally interactions between people and the environment. And uh, some of those relate to food security, some relate to forest cover change. Um, but what we're doing here in Bloomington is a collaboration between myself and Bernie Fisher, who's in SPIA, um, focusing on how people are managing tree cover in urban areas. And there's been a lot of work done on this in uh, a lot of U.S. cities, but there's been not a lot of emphasis put on how different kinds of legislative and municipal um, ordinances interact with the way that individuals make decisions. And so that's what we're trying to do with this particular research project that we're working on this summer is to look at um, how homeowners associations and how the Bloomington City Code and how what people's awareness is of these kinds of um, institutions and figure out how people different uh, react and what that does to their landscapes when they make decisions. And what are you finding for the city of Bloomington so far? Well, um, we're we're out. I've got a, a team of graduate students that are out collecting data at this uh, right now as we speak. So um, we're doing our our main data collection. We sent a survey out um, a few weeks ago, and um, we're grateful to those respondents who've already uh, sent that back in and. Uh, we're going to continue that through the summer, so we haven't gotten the results from that work um, yet. But we're doing a combination of a household survey where we're asking people um, what they know about their land, how, how they make decisions, what kind of trees they plant, whether they've removed trees. Um, and then we're also going out to a subset of those parcels that, where people have said, yes, you can come out to our property. And we're actually doing an inventory of those yards to identify what tree species exist on those properties, um, Lee has done a lot of great work with Bernie and, and other people in doing an inventory of the street trees in Bloomington. And the street trees are those that are right by the curbside. But we know less about what the uh, composition of tree cover is in the city in people's yards. So we're trying to get a, 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 an assessment of that, both in terms of what kind of trees are out there, but also how much carbon is sequestered in those trees and um, a lot of the ecosystem properties that uh, Mia referred to. Can we talk about how that has changed since the tornadoes that came through maybe, was it a month ago, six weeks ago? Um, how many trees did the city lose and IU lose? Well, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, since May 25th. And I've, I've decided that the upside of the storm event um, on on the 25th especially is it's a really good check on our arrogance in that a lot of what we a lot of what we do at the end of the day uh, mother nature and father time can really weigh in and it can all turn to folly fairly quickly so our pursuits don't need to be any less diligent but we have to look at what happened as an opportunity uh, to be able to, to come in and, and make right and address some issues and, and start over the best we can um, with the research that we've done. And thanks to Tom's uh, efforts, we'll have good data. And having in, um, inventory data is a huge step in the right direction because you know where you were and where you want to get back to. I mean, the Bloomington campus is you know, has long been known as a woodland campus, and we need to make sure that we provide that back for generations to come. Yeah, in the Bloomington area, I think, you know, as long as I've been here, this was a real body blow as far as the number of trees lost over a short period of time. And specifically, these were mostly mature trees. Um, but as Mia s s suggested, that it's also a good time to reflect on uh, looking at the inventory data that we have and looking at the opportunities to replant and how you can do some modification of the urban forest. And, and I like to tell people the urban forest, for the most part, is a man-made forest. So 
again, the decisions that you make um, at planting time can have some long-term effects. And in case in point, um, our inventory data that was done in 2007 showed that we are uh, pretty much a maple city. Most of our most of our trees, red maple is our number one uh, tree species. Um, so we're looking to then. This is an opportunity to put some diversity back into our urban forest. Um, and then there's also we have to look on the horizon of some of the other threats that we have to the urban forest. Uh, got a news release from the DNR here recently about uh, another exotic insect was found in the Cincinnati area uh, called Asian longhorn beetle. Uh, it, it had appeared in Chicago several years ago, and um, Mayor Daly up there was very aggressive in removing that insect, uh, and it almost became the case model on how to eradicate a, a an insect pest into your urban forest. But here it is, showed up again, and its number one food source that it likes to prefer is maple. So... Um, and then Chicago has learned, you know, after they had their, their scare and they lost a tremendous amount of maple trees in their in their subdivision, they went and replanted ash trees. And now they're dealing with emerald ash borer. So they, they've set the table for it. So we have to look at that also. It's interesting you mentioned Chicago. I was thinking about that as we began preparing for the show. And it's a city that in recent years has planted a lot of trees. Mayor Daley, one of the last things he did during his, the last four years of his administration was plant just thousands and thousands of trees in a city that already had many, mm-hmm. many trees. And that is something that Bloomington, I think, has in common with Chicago is they're both cities that are built around their foliage in some way. Um, and I wondered if that's Normal. I mean, I think that when you think about Bloomington, as you said, Mia, it's known as a woodland area, woodland campus for IU. But I go not too far outside of South Central Indiana, and trees seem to be more decoration than anything else. They don't seem to have a plan. They seem to be thrown up willy-nilly with many different species tossed next to one another. And I wonder if there is a coherent plan in much of the state of Indiana for how urban forestry is done or if there are a lot of cities that are perhaps behind the curve. I, yeah, I guess, Tom, do you? We can just take, take turns. Go ahead, I, Lee. Or, well, yeah. You know, the state has Pam Lauks in the Division of Forestry who oversees the state urban forestry program. And Pam uh, has a pulse on what other communities, <clears throat> excuse me, are doing as far as their urban forestry program. And and she also then tracks other communities that are striving to become a tree city USA also. So and in talking with her, I know some cities get it. Some cities don't. Bloomington has gotten it from the start. Um, I will say our first tree ordinance was written in 1927. Um, I've been fortunate enough to go to different places, and when I was introduced as an urban forester in Bloomington, people had been here and said, oh, you know, you're very fortunate to work in a community where people love trees, and that that's true. Um, we did a I, – I had a, an intern in my office do some research this past summer um, – in looking at some of the history of Bloomington, and we found in f- some old historical fo- uh, postcards showing tree-lined streets of, like, North Washington Street, and then there's a classic one of uh, at 3rd and College down to where the former high school was showing American elms. Um, so Bloomington has always been a tree-loving community from the start. And I'm sure it will be long after I'm gone. I think another thing that Bloomington has going for it is the fact um, how closely Lee and I work together. I'm on the Bloomington Tree Commission, which is a a group that supports Lee's efforts. And Lee's a member of our campus tree uh, group that's part of the um, Arbor Day Tree Tree Campus USA program. So we're talking about, okay, how are you thinking about addressing emerald ash borer and sharing ideas and seeing where we can benefit from cooperation? And I think 
that you know the, the canopy extends beyond physical boundaries, and I think it's important that we have people that are thinking in that way as well. So I think Bloomington's got uh, you know ahead of some other cities in that regard too. Yeah, right now in in Bloomington in the core area, if you just look down from a satellite, forty percent of the space in Bloomington is covered by tree canopy, which is a it's a pretty amazingly high number. And um, I, whenever we have visitors come and, and visit with our research group, I, I think almost every single time, especially those who are coming from urban areas, they always say, wow, your campus is amazingly beautiful and your city is amazingly beautiful. And I think we kind of take it for granted to a certain extent that mm-hmm. we have so much tree cover here in the city and it does add to our quality of life in a very diverse number of ways. And it's because of the um, these long kind of um, difficult, complex tasks that, that Lee and Mia deal with is kind of moving targets of trying to always keep up with what are the threats to the tree canopy and how can we um, plan for diversity in our tree canopy to make sure that it, it exists into the future. It's, a, it's a not an easy thing to do. Well, what about other municipal areas? I mean, are there uh, – am I, am I right in thinking that there are plenty of cities out there who just say, oh, here's a tree, here's a tree, let's put them wherever we see fit and they don't really – pay as much attention? Well, just like Lee mentioned, there are um, urban foresters that are on staff with a lot, a lot of municipalities. But, but there are a lot more than 20-some-odd cities in Indiana. Exactly, yeah. And um, I would Lee can probably say better than I, but I would bet that the of those 28, those um, people don't always get to spend all their time on trees probably. So it's uh, the... And they're also now being asked to do more with less also. And it's really not a one-time expense. Uh, The planting of the tree is actually the easy and fun part, (laughs) I think. And then there is the the maintenance and and making sure you're stewarding that resource. But there's also a a really long-term legacy effect here where, you know, here we are in south-central Indiana, which is one of the forested areas before European colonization. This is where forests were in the state. It wasn't prairie land. And so... Um, a lot of the trees that we see today are these really old old individuals who were here when there was a farmstead and they had some trees that were there for shade purposes or for fences. And um, the legacy of those kinds of historical decisions we still, still see in the landscape today. Yeah, I, I will attend some um, programming done by the Indiana Urban Forest Council, and I generally would say that um, the communities up in northern Indiana, where it's more flat and corn and soy being predominant areas those people up there clamor more for an urban forest than people here in the south uh, there's more active programming up there a lot of it also is being done by volunteer groups um not necessarily professional volunteers who get together and plant trees and that's correct trees. Yeah. yeah, there's a program in Indianapolis called Keeping Indianapolis Beautiful right. that um, has a, a massive um, tree planting program that engages the community and um, works with um, community members to water the trees, to keep them healthy as they try to um, grow through the initial stages. So it's uh, there's lots of diverse ways that trees end up um, growing in urban areas. You mentioned that Bloomington had its first tree ordinance in 1927. Mm-hmm. I think you said, what was going on at that time in history? That this, this I think a lot of it had to do with looking at the profession was starting to grow out of the east um, with what you see with Olmstead and uh, some of the park work there. Um, yeah, our, our, our ordinance wasn't updated from 1927 all the way to 1993. So uh, back then, some of the some of the biggest issues, and you look at some of the earlier ones, believe it or not, is how people hitch their their horses up to the trees that were located in in communities. Um, but back then, it was really simple. It was basically the protection of trees, not again placing signs and hanging different uh, wires and such from from the trees in the area. Okay. And I've heard stories, but what exactly is in IU's policy on cutting trees in terms of, I'm sorry, in, in terms of trees, cutting them down, maintaining them? 
um, if they're damaged, what do you, what sort of procedure is there? Well, pretty much we evaluate every tree that is questioned for removal, and we have three certified arborists on staff that uh, we use. They have formulas that I don't pretend to understand all the variables included there, but it is a, an established formula that will assess the risk for that tree, and then we will make a decision as to whether or not it needs to be taken. Um, with the storm, it's interesting that there were some easy decisions to make. The ones that are laying on the ground already, you obviously, we're going to take those and that's not a question. But trees, um, much like people, have the ability to recover from injury. And while they might not be a specimen moving forward, they can grow and thrive and, you know, should be left. And that's our feeling. And so we will continue to be making decisions about damage that occurred on the 25th for, you know, months to come yet. But the the starting point I like to tell people is always, no, the tree stays. <laughs> and then we make an evaluation. You were mentioning uh, before the show that there are some some trees of some significance that fell during the storm. I think mm-hmm. you said the, the 1889 class tree is one that, that came down. That's right. Uh, I was in Dunswoods with our arborists uh, two days ago, and they had taken that tree. They had cut a 30-foot log that was free and clear of any type of branching. So in the timber industry, that's um, something that's potentially of value. But I don't know much about the timber industry, but I know from a legacy effect and a legacy standpoint, that has significance beyond that. It's part of the, the university's history. And so we will be treating certain logs in a, in a special way. And we do have, uh, obviously, we have a marshalling yard that we've been using on campus for general debris that will be disposed of. Um, but we're also selecting logs uh, that are special or that might have uh, value as being able to produce some timber that we could use back on campus in some of our buildings. Um, we're setting those aside and we'll have those evaluated. Are there other notable uh, stories from that storm of trees that you will pay particular attention to? Oh, mercy. There are probably the, the about 300 trees of significant size came down, and several areas of campus are fundamentally changed. Uh, the character of those areas have been changed. Um, I'm trying to think of other... Uh, impacts that off the top of my head, I can't. Can't. Think I was of it. walking through Dunn Meadow. I don't know, just a few days ago, and just the difference in the amount of sunlight coming through there is what was so shocking to me. Mm-hmm. It was always so shaded, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden, it's really bright. Yeah, the canopy was actually complete uh, over Dunn's Woods, and now it's. I don't know. I haven't looked at. I, mean, I don't think they have any satellite imagery that uh, can be referenced, but it's probably fifty percent open now. Mm-hmm. And it, it was amazing because I'm, for a college campus to be able to stand in the middle and in the summer, you could be in the middle of Dunn's Woods and look out and you could not see a building. The canopy was so dense and the understory was so dense that it was striking. And, and now it's, uh, yeah, the amount of openings there is, is striking. But it's it's interesting because around um, Hyper, there's kind of a few, there were four individual trees that were humongous trees. And I think two of those, two or three of those four along the west side of Hyper Sugar um, maples. got lost, yeah. And so it's to, to lose that many individuals in a small place on campus poses a really challenging um, task for me in terms of, okay, how to get this back to what it looks like or do you want to try to get it back to what it looks like versus Dunn's Woods where there's a huge number of trees in there and you take a few, you lose three or four individuals, but... It changes the the character, but not quite as dramatically as around Hyper and some of these other areas. Right. And what I alluded to uh, at the beginning of the show about landscape architectures traditionally having architects having a different view of the urban forest from urban foresters, that's a good example of those were sugar maples that were planted probably, oh, 60, 70 feet on center and allowed to just, you know, achieve their full specimen quality. That's that's one type of planting, but I'm now looking at how do we recreate areas where we have trees that are planted three feet apart because that's where nature put them and allowed them to kind of grow up together. 
that's equally a part of what Indiana University Bloomington is all about. And that's sort of the, it's got more nuances involved in, in recreating that. So it does create, even though it's a dramatic event or a couple of events that we had in May, it does create some opportunities to go in directions that would have been more difficult to do otherwise. I want to talk more about those directions when we get back after our break here, but we have reached the bottom of the hour here on Noon Edition. Please do join us. If you're near a telephone, call us at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or go to our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia. And short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. We are back on Noon Edition talking about urban forestry in the aftermath of the strong spring storms this year. We're talking with Tom Evans, the director of SIPAC, the Center for the Study of Institutions, Population, and Environmental Change, Bloomington's city forester, Lee Huss, and IU's director of landscape architecture, Mia Williams. Uh, I wanted to get back to something that we were talking about uh, a little bit before the break, which is the sort of opportunity that this kind of presents in terms of trying to recreate what the city had before the storms. How do you go about making decisions as a human that were previously not made by humans, that were just made by, made by, hey, this seed fell and germinated here and became a tree. How do you determine what is the right thing to do in the case where the decision was made not by a person prior to you? That is the question at hand. Um, I think it starts with studying a lot of what you see in nature and observing, again, Duns Woods is a perfect example of looking at um, a, a mature forest canopy prior to the storm and noticing a myriad of little maple seedlings at the base. Now, the canopy that's above it will choke out a majority of those seedlings and, and just a few will, will rise um, and mature. So studying existing native spaces helps you understand that it will probably be a good idea to plant a variety of sizes when you restore so that you create that multi-level and allow for some of the natural succession to be part of the process that you are creating. And then, again, I I think you need to embrace a little bit of the, the chaos that nature adds to the mix and understand that you're not putting a single plan on paper that it's going to be this or nothing, that things are going to happen that will change and impact it, and it will it will be as it should be. Yeah, I think probably, you know, my forestry background, you know, light uh, drives the forest. It will determine what's going to win out, what's not going to win out. I think one of the biggest issues that the city will have uh, from a natural area that the, the parks department has is the the Wapahani Mountain Bike Park, um, where we have certain openings already. We were starting to see uh, Alanthus, uh, Tree of Heaven, which is a very aggressive exotic, come in and, ch- and chokes out native trees, uh, making a a foothold. And we just feel that 
other openings have been now created through the storm where we may see more of this exotic come in. So that's one of the biggest concerns that we're going to have in the next few years. Along that, those lines, we were very fortunate in that just prior to the storm or about six weeks prior to the storm, we treated our Alanthus within Dunn's Woods. So the fact that they were taken out and disturbed, we had already gotten the, the majority of the kill done. So we are, we're we're tracking it, but we don't think we're as vulnerable to that horrific push of new growth that they do, you know, do. So. You brought up an interesting point about the sort of invasive species. Uh, but, Tom, I want to ask you, you know, in this sort of invasive species thing happens. I mean, it's just part of nature. Sometimes things get transported places where they were not originally. Is that something that necessarily you should try to control or prevent or just something you should plan for in terms of we know this is going to happen somewhere down the line, but we'll deal with it reactively when it happens? Well, I think some of the difficulty is that the with invasive species, in some cases, the longer you let it go, the harder it is to deal with down the road. And so uh, I'll just use my own personal example. So um, I have a house that was a former rental that was uh, not landscaped for a long period of time. And so we have a backyard full of euonymus. And uh, I've been fighting a, a personal battle with that euonymus for a number of years. And um, Who's winning? I am uh, not winning. Uh, <laughs> um, but in the tree of heaven, um, there, there's um, – that certainly uh, – that grows up to bigger individuals. And so the, with these um, invasive species, it's – the longer you let it go, the harder it is to deal with in many cases. And so – um, not all of it is so aggressive where it's going to spread from parcel to parcel, but I think one of the, the difficulties is that a lot of people's parcels are adjacent to other kinds of properties like common spaces or city property. And so there's a lot of um, parcel to parcel spread of invasive species, but there's also spread from people's parcels to other kinds of properties. And so it's not just a, a an issue for an individual landowner. There's a lot of um, complexities between the, the spatial relationships that are in the city that um, lead to um, kind of complicated management situations. I want to get to our first phone caller of the afternoon. Roger is on the phone. Roger, thanks for calling in to Noon Edition. Thank you. Um, I appreciate what you're saying about the canopy, particularly for carbon mitigation as well as for the um, cooling and uh, pleasant effects of trees. But when, when we look around our own neighborhood, sometimes we see tree services come through that are really, I think, commercial tree cutters. And, um, you know, when trying to ask a question of, you know, what's going on over there, um, the neighbor says, oh, well, they were all trashy trees. And they all looked very healthy, evergreens on one lot, an adjacent lot was a variety of trees, and the neighbors decided they really didn't like them there anymore, felt maybe they were dangerous. And what what I'm getting at is, is there any objective standard of that that a homeowner should uh, use in saying, in taking the advice of somebody who makes most of their money by cutting down trees? And secondly, then, are there any incentives in the city for people to maintain or develop the tree canopy? Well, I get this question quite often from a standpoint of... Um who should I hire? You know, a person has a private tree. Um, there are some accreditations out there that we like to recommend. The International Society of Arboriculture does have a certified arborist certification um, that goes through a training and a testing. Uh, however, I have met v- a few very competent arborists who, for whatever reason, have decided not to do that process. Um, there is also standards in the industry put out by the National Arborist Association that talk about their different pruning standards, and that's probably the toughest decision a homeowner can can make because you can get two qualified individuals. It kind of pruning a tree sometimes. Uh, is that art feature of of a of a tree? Um, no two will prune it exactly alike. Um, but the you know getting on the International Society of Arboriculture's webpage, 
um, and looking under the certified arborist is is highly what I recommend to everybody to at least start there. So is is there anything like um, in real estate you can have an appraiser tell you what a property's worth and that's independent from the realtor who wants to sell it. Uh, so is there are there people who can give you objective advice? Yeah, they're, they they're, don't want it. They don't want to do anything with your trees. They they just can be hired to tell you what should be done. There again through the International Society of Boriculture, there is a plant appraisal standard. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I don't believe there's anybody here in the Bloomington area that does that. Um, uh, ter- uh, Judd Scott out of uh, Indianapolis, I believe, is the closest individual, and both me and I have utilized his services from time to time. Um, but uh, there is a a formula that those people use to determine the landscape value, mm-hmm. and that is completely different from timber value. I will state that. Sometimes people confuse the two. But, um, again... Starting point, anyway. The starting okay. point with Vine and Branch Horticultural okay. Services out of Carmel. Okay, thank you. Roger, thanks so much for your call. Want to move on to another caller we have on the line. Mock is on the phone from Bloomington. Thanks for calling in to Noon Edition this afternoon. Hi. Um, uh, two things. First, I, Lee mentioned the National Arborist Association. Uh, that, that's now been changed. The name is now TCIA, Tree Care Industry Association. Hi, Mark. How you doing? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Hi, Hi Mark. Um, if they tried to find NAA. That's though. true. They have recently changed. Yeah. Um, I think it's great that the city and the university are making an effort to replant the trees, but one thing that I see is that um, the trees are either not planted correctly or there's an excessive amount of mulch. And I wonder what's being done to address those issues? Uh, if you look in today's Herald Times, I happen to be quoted on the uh, mulching issue okay. uh, that someone brought up. And uh, I, I went to went to school with them on uh, just get people to think of bagels instead of volcanoes. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, the tree planting is a very good, very good issue, actually. That's something I have to say in my few years in my profession – um, we are seeing some municipalities where they were planting large number of trees. We're seeing trees die at a much earlier age, and we're scratching their heads thinking why. And in, in digging a lot of these trees up, they discovered the tree was planted too deep. Tree roots do need oxygen to grow. And in looking at a lot of this information, they discovered that uh, a lot of this started way in the nursery when these trees were what were referred to as whips were planted too deep and the roots have come up to get oxygen and have then did some girdling root issues. Um, actually, it was just, oh, I want to say, 10, 12 years ago, we, the, we, this whole issue was being brought to light in the industry. Uh, it is not uncommon for our people when we get a tree to take the burlap top off and actually remove about anywhere from six to eight inches and look for the natural root flare of that tree and get that level with the ground. Well, I, I, I'm curious. Um, do you, and I, I would address this to Mia too because I see it in campus, street trees, park trees, everywhere. And it's not all the trees, but I do see it in all areas on some trees. Um, what do you do to train the employees to plant correctly, mulch correctly, et cetera? Yeah, I was going to jump in and um, offer that we do uh, send our folks to training um, on an annual basis. And one thing that I thought uh, you might like to know, and Lee has been a participant in the, our Arbor Day uh, ceremony the last couple of years where we've engaged a group of students in a volunteer effort and our nursery uh, crews come out and teach the proper way to plant a tree and go through many of the steps that Lee just enumerated. And then they all break up into groups and we oversee them actually getting to plant a bald and burlap tree. And I think it's wonderful that they can then take that with them when they leave the university and they're able to plant 
trees in their own yards and, they, and they'll know how to do it the right way. And so I think we're making an effort to, you know, get the best research, get people trained, and then get that information out there. Um, but, yeah, I, I see some of the, the same things that you see, Mark. Yeah. Is there any follow-up when trees are planted to see who's doing it correctly, who may still need training and reinforcement? Well, our people, both of our tree planters, are certified arborists, so I, know I, can, I can pretty well think that they're not doing it. Um, right. Yeah, ours are the same. So um, usually what I hear from our staff is, boy, that the load of trees that you got from X nursery, they still don't get it. They've, we're still taking, you know, the top of the ball off in order to get what we need. And, and that's something then we can take up with our nursery providers. Right, right. Well, that, that's good then that they recognize that. and um, I think both of you are right. It goes back really to the nursery, and it just gets more and more complicated as the trees moved and replanted and restocked. And, um, All right, Mark, thanks, thanks so much for your call. Those were good questions. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Have a good afternoon. I do want to follow up just a bit on what Mark was saying. I'm sitting here with dirt under my fingernails right now because we're doing a lot of landscaping at my house. And... We were wondering how to, how exactly to plant the trees, and on the directions it always says dig a hole twice the size of the ball. But then do you, if you just put that in a hole, <laughs> your tree is getting buried. So how, how do you know, and, and do you really follow those instructions that are on, on the trees? And it's not twice the depth. It's, it's twice, twice the, the width. Okay, right. Yeah, they, they've done a lot of studies in looking at what are the first roots to regener- regenerate and majority of those roots are in the upper six to eight inches. So it's actually it's, – it's more of the bowl shape where you're – those roots near the surface that are going to come out. And that's why then again mulching is, is such beneficial um, early on because it will suppress turf grass, which is probably going to take more of the water um, than giving it to the tree so it can regenerate. And water does – um, is one of the critical factors in the first few years of development. Yeah, I so think one of the, the biggest uh, mistakes or errors that I see folks use when they plant trees at home is they, they'll plant the tree and they'll plant the tree fine, but then they'll want to have shrubs and perennials and other plants immediately adjacent to it. So all those things are competing for the, the water resources in that immediate root zone area, and that sort of complicates life for the tree. And especially after planting, it's particularly when you need to make sure that there's enough water availability for the tree to survive that because there's a big shock when you plant the tree and for it to get through that is uh, not easy. Tom, we did have one question that, that came in here I wanted to address specifically to you. Um, this comment's coming from John, and he's asking, can additional interested residents participate in the survey that you're working on? Uh, he lives on the south side of town and would love to participate. Um, well, it's we had a... a, a a sampling design that we um, used from the original um, start of the project, and so it, it's not easy to uh, to participate now that we've already got that kind of locked in, unfortunately. And um, we're extremely grateful to those residents who said that um, they'd be willing to let us come on their property and do these inventories. But unfortunately, there was more response than we have staff available to go out and, and do. But um, we would we do want to share the results of, of the work that we're doing, and so um, they can go to the website um, www.indiana.edu/tilde-c-i-p-e-c, um, or they can email me evans at indiana.edu, and I'll be happy to um, get as much information from our research out to whoever would like to digest it. We've got a couple phone callers I'd like to get to. Della has been waiting patiently on the phone. Thanks for calling in. I wanted to uh, ask specifically about the maples around the parking lot at um, uh, Indiana and Kirkwood. Uh, They were put in uh, about three years ago uh, during a renovation, and they're doing awfully badly. Some of the climate change projections suggest that we're going to go from a lot of maple forest to oak hickory. Uh, Are maples really the best choice for Bloomington now? Well, actually, they do quite well with the the shallow limestone soils we have. Um, 
they're an easy transplant. I will give that's why you see a lot of them. You don't see a lot of the oaks because they are much much more difficult tree to get established. Um, I think to Lee's earlier point, though, that we also, you know, we're pretty heavy on maples anyway. So I think we're going to try and, and introduce some more oaks on campus. Not They're not great trees for shade and parking lots because of acorns and, and that kind of stuff. But um, I'm not really quite sure exactly what the parking lot location that you're referencing, though. Uh, the Vaughn Lee lot is. Hmm. Okay, well, I'll have to take a look at that. Uh, lots yeah. of little trees with lots of damage, and a number of them have died. Well, it, yeah. but in Indiana overall, the, the real trend in tree composition is moving from oak hickory, which was with a more mature canopy, to a more maple, poplar. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of getting more and more oak poor um, than we are getting maple poor, really. Well, thank you for the comment, though, Della. You've uh, you've you've elicited some confused faces here in the room, but I have a feeling <laughs> I have a feeling Mia and, and Lee are about to go back and look at that area. So thanks thanks for that. We want to move on to a, a couple other callers. Make sure we try and get in as many as we can. Tom is on the phone. Tom, thanks for calling in to Noon Edition this afternoon. Thanks. Um, I uh, I live in the uh, Van Buren Edition, which is just outside the city limits near Tappan Thirty Seven, and. Uh, when that neighborhood was built, um, they just basically covered the whole thing with silver maple trees. And I tell you, it's just been a, horrific in the last several years with the ice storms and the wind storms. Those, the trees, they, they just literally fall apart. Uh, I, I lost my aluminum shed. I, I took out half of my neighbor's vegetable garden. Uh, the silver maple across the street damaged the roof. Um, they, they're just terrible as far as, uh, you know, what you're faced with, uh, you know, down the road, and I was just wondering, is that this? Uh, am I being too hard on the silver maples, or is <laughs> absolutely <that> just... <laughs> not, Tom? Um, I, I will tell you that I actually heard a story from a professor who taught up at Michigan State University, who really told his students that if ever caught them planting a silver maple, he'd go back and lower their grade. <laughs> um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, it's horrible. I mean, and that's all they did. They, they must have put like five of those trees in every single lot out well, there. They, they were planted extensively. Our, our recent inventory data show it to be roughly about 6%. I believe when I started, it was much higher. Uh, it was by far one of the largest tree removals species that we had done. It led our list up until recently as our number one call out where we had to bring people in in overtime to remove it off of either said street or car. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seemed at the time to be the perfect tree after the American elm succumbed to Dutch elm in the 50s. Um, I think Mia would agree that the nursery industry kind of drives our bus also a little bit as far as them touting certain trees. We are dealing with right now also another plague of of Bradford flowering pears. pears that were the big the big wonder tree in the 80s, uh, and we're now starting to see the problems there. But uh, silver maple happens to be one of these trees that is a very weak tree, very brittle, has poor angle of attachments. Part of the double-edged sword, though, is, and Lee and I have talked about this a lot, is that because that most of them were planted in the 50s, they are mature, and so they make up a, a fairly large part of the canopy. And that does not mean we should tolerate trees that are dangerous, but it's one of those, like we have several of um, them parked planted in the North Park area between 17th and 13th Street, and it's mostly open grass area, so we're less uh, on top of getting them removed immediately. But yes, at, at some point, you have to make the call that this is past the point of benefiting from a large canopy, and we need to move on to the next type. Oh, yeah. I'd love to get rid of all of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Tom, thanks. Yeah. We promise not to give your name to the Silver Maple Association <laughs> of America after okay. we get off the phone with you here, but thanks so much for your phone call this afternoon. want to move on to uh, Joe, who's been waiting for a little while on the line. Joe, thanks. Uh, we finally have time to get to you here. Good afternoon. Hi. Uh, yeah, I just think there's a couple things that are going to contribute to the tree apocalypse that we have coming up. One is if you drive around town, you'll see a bunch of older mature trees hemmed in by street, uh, by sidewalks, curbs, and streets, and they have like maybe two inches of space to get water. So 
those seem to be the first ones to go down on First Street and all these other uh, uh, streets where you have you have sidewalk, tree, and then street. There's just not enough room for them to breathe. And the other thing I think contributing is going to be the new urbanism. If you go down South Grant to that new construction, where you have houses like with almost zero lot clearance, uh, garages in the back, alleyways, and postage stamp yards, you have no room for shrubs and trees. And if you go to older neighborhoods, you see with a little more, they got a little more yard. The houses don't engage the street. You have trees in the front yard, trees in the backyard, shrubs all over. So it seems like we're entering an era of policies of, that are going to reduce the number of trees in Bloomington. And like your comments. Thanks. Well, you bring up a very good issue because Bloomington is becoming, you're right, becoming more canyonized. Um, so urban foresters like myself, we look at then other models of other communities who have been dealing with canyonized uh, ecosystems. And we are now looking at planting certain tree cultivars that have been bred, maybe a maple tree that is more upright. Um, and they're out there, and I'm finding myself utilizing more and more of those tree species. And we're also looking at new technologies, um, soils that can exist under pavements. So within the street tree profile, you have structured soils. Stru- yeah, structured soils um, that are viable for the tree root system to grow in, but also can support the pavement. So instead of the trees having that um, scary-looking four-foot width between the curb and the sidewalk, they also have the additional six, eight feet be- underneath the sidewalk to get the nutrients, get the, the water that they need. And there's been some success with those, again, using, as Lee said, the appropriate type of cultivars. Well, I'm afraid we've we've run out of time, but but thank you to the three of you, uh, and thank you for uh, all the callers who called in. Uh, some some great information, uh, especially I think I, I know for me, I, I know nothing about landscaping, but this has been definitely instructive for me. Uh, and and uh, Sarah and I are going to dig our tree holes differently, I think, from from now <laughs> yes. on. So, so our thanks to uh, to Tom Evans, to Mia Williams, to Lee Huss for being with us today for our show on urban forestry. You can always go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition, and find the entire program there. For Mike Pashkash, Rachel Lyon, Libby Peterson, Sarah Whitmire, I'm Stan Jastrzewski saying thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times, A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.